Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. The 12 steps are synonymous with alcoholism, certainly in my mind. But what are these steps and do they provide a blueprint for recovery only related to alcoholism? To discuss these and other questions for today's episode entitled Alcoholism and the 12 Steps, I'm joined by Dr. David Webb. David is no stranger to the podcast, but to remind listeners, he's a medical doctor and an associate at Houghton House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Center. He's worked in the pharmaceutical industry and works as a medical writer. In recent times, he has published volumes of poetry, specifically The Saint of Travelers and most recently Saints and Liars. Both volumes are available at www.poetryofaddiction.com. And as I'm thinking about Poets and alcohol, two of my favorite poets, Charles Bukowski and uh, Raymond Carver, were heavy drinkers. I'm not sure that Bukowski ever thought of himself as an alcoholic, but certainly Raymond Carver did. And obviously, before I want to get into the uh, the 12 steps, I suppose we need to contextualize our discussion and, and just look at this term alcoholism. Because obviously, as a psychiatrist coming from the DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the fifth version They've got a very mechanistic way of looking at these kinds of conditions in terms of, you know, disorders of use and obviously looking at substance-induced, so substance use and substance-induced um, consequences in this instance of alcohol, but there are various other substances um, that they speak about. And in fact, I was about to say that the American Psychiatric Association will probably come up with a, another DSM beyond five. And in fact, there is a text revision already. Um, although this one was published in 2013, and they've added a new diagnostic entity to do with grief, but that'll be the subject of another podcast when we discuss grief. So I know that you and I have spoken on many occasions, and there's this whole issue of addiction versus substance abuse, and your thoughts on that. Because if I take the DSM approach, they would speak about alcohol use disorder. So I would say, well, that's alcoholism. Um, they speak about intoxication, withdrawal, so that's substance-induced. And then there's a whole bunch of alcohol-induced disorders, depression, psychosis, etc. And then there's the sort of neurocognitive consequences, delirium, dementia, etc. As well as the fact that alcohol may impact on existing psychopathology if you've got a pre-existing condition. So just your thoughts on, on this whole issue of addiction, versus substance abuse. And, and, and there's a reason I'm asking that specifically of you because I know you've got views on it. But I wanted to also bring in something I've been reading recently, Gabor Mate's book, uh, The Myth of Normal. Mm. And obviously he's got a lot to say on addiction. So, David. Mm. I think alcoholism is a very broad term encompassing a very broad group of people. And if you attend... Uh, one of the group meetings of alcoholics, you'll find a very wide spectrum of people there who have had uh, a range of experiences from very little uh, impairment of their life, except that they feel that they're drinking too much, right. to people who have had severe consequences, including um, um, deaths, and uh, losing everything, for example, mm -hmm. going bank having to declare bankruptcy, um, losing their family, mm -hmm. um, divorce, and having their children estranged from them. So the consequences can be extremely dire. Um, and, and it's a good point to start with because um, one of the reasons that we hear stories in, in uh, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, and I must just point out that I don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, Everything I say is um, on, on my own behalf. Yes. Um, one of the reasons we tell the stories is so that uh, people who um, are not sure where they fall in the spectrum may hear something that they relate to and identify with. And one of the main symptoms of addiction 
that uh, I would point out, and, and it's a characteristic also of alcoholism, which is not necessarily addiction, I don't think. Mm. It may be, but not necessarily. And is, I think that's interesting. I want to come back to this. Well, yeah. yeah. Carry on. It is a sense of uh, appalling isolation, a sense of aloneness. And this is one of the reasons I think that uh, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous can be so successful because what you, f- you hear stories that people are telling and you can relate to those. And the sense of aloneness is that it's not loneliness. It's that there's nobody else in my world. No one's done the things I've done. No one's thought the thoughts that I'm thinking. And no one can understand why when um, my family says to me, just don't have one more. Yes. At the time, I will say, okay, and, and well, maybe I won't. But, but I mean, I might. And, and at that very split second moment, I mean it because I wish that I wish it to be true. I wish that I could not have it. But once uh, you started having a couple of drinks, if you're an alcoholic, normally you need to keep going. But again, that doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. So I mean, some people have said to me uh, at at meetings, for example, I, I don't, I haven't lost everything. My family hasn't left me. I, I haven't crashed the car. Am I an alcoholic? And the answer to those people is, well. It doesn't really matter what you call yourself. If you feel like your alcohol use has become a problem, then you're in the right place because this is where you're going to be able to find some assistance to decrease that. So in a sense, you're not using a minimum quantity or frequency. I mean, it's it's from what you've just said now, it's more, well, if you think it's a problem, then you're in the right place. But I think a lot of the time people don't think it's a problem and they don't get to that place until – they are forced or compelled for various reasons to, 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 to find their way there. If alcohol use is more, the, let me rather say alcohol abuse. Right. Because that's what it is. Right. Um, is, is severe, then it's very difficult to live without it. Um, the best definition of, uh, of an alcoholic, which, um, is in the AA text is that you can't leave alcohol alone. So most people would drink every day or, or, or binge drinkers would drink every weekend. Yes. Um, and you can't go a couple of days or a week or two without using alcohol, even if you want to stop. And the second thing is if you start drinking and you can't stop when you started drinking. So many alcoholics will, will start to drink and they'll continue until they black out. Uh, then alcohol has become a problem. So uh, one of the the terms that's often used in, I hear it in rehabs a lot, is this sense of this term denial. Mm -hmm. People accused of being in denial. You know, they've got, their alcohol problem is evident. You You can see things falling apart, but they don't say it's a problem. And I, I think it's, it's not a nice term. It's a, it's a, it's, for me, it's a, it's quite a judgmental term, which is not helpful. Because first of all, what are you saying? Are you saying that uh, I, I I know that it's true, but I'm denying it, I'm lying? Yes. Or are you saying I know that it's true and uh, I wish it not to be true and therefore I don't want to face it, which I think is, is most likely the case, which I don't think is you know a purposeful uh, attempt at deceiving people. Alternatively, I may really just not know it's true. Yeah. Um, so – I don't think the, the term denial is helpful, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, many people won't at least won't admit to the problem, yeah, because it's really really hard to stop. So I mean, there's a certain resistance. Yes, I mean, I'm I'm using resistance um, not in the place of denial, but I think it comes down to the same thing, which means that you're not taking that step. Exactly. To address it. So, I mean, people often talk about hitting your rock bottom, and this is what people uh, often gets people into some sort of treatment program or, or an AA group or both. Um, because, I mean, that is captured, if I look at the diagnostic and statistical manuals criteria, I mean, that issue of not acknowledging, even in the face of evidence to show that you're not coping, you're not functioning, you're not the person that you can or should be. Mm. There is no acknowledgement of that and therefore willingness to actually address it. Yes. It's, it, 
you know, the, the thing is, if you've been through this and you know what it's like, it's yeah. not a question of not an acknowledging it. It's a question of not being able to live without it. And I think, sorry, just to jump in there, I started out by saying I think the DSM is quite mechanistic. It doesn't actually speak to the lived experience. And what you're talking about now is if you haven't been there, you don't necessarily understand what it means to take that step or why it's so difficult to take that well, step. Well, life without alcohol is scary. Right. Because that's that's the way I cope with a difficult life. It's the way I cope with a lack of coping skills. It's the way I cope with my low self-esteem, my low sense of uh, self-efficacy, which, uh, which by that I mean that I have some sort of sense that I have some control over my life and the way it goes. So would you say that's because that capacity is missing, that ability to do that is missing? The one thing that all alcoholics have in common is poor coping skills. Right. Otherwise, I don't think we would turn to alcohol to uh, And the reason I'm cope. asking that is because Gabor Mate speaks to some extent. I think my interpretation is that addiction is, is, is almost a compensation for what is missing, something that you don't have and you have to compensate for it. So here we're talking about the ability to cope. So that is missing in a sense. And so he uses the word addiction. I think you are more comfortable with using the word addiction. Well, it depends. Right. I think addiction manifests itself later. I think, you know, you can, you can have two people who would be classified as alcoholics and look very similar and that they're drinking too much. Right. Um, and what happens is when you drink a lot of alcohol, your body becomes dependent on it. So that also makes it very difficult to stop, you know, right. and that's often ignored that it, there's a physiological dependence, not only a psychological dependence and that the withdrawals from from ceasing alcohol use, in particular the withdrawals that you can't see, and I'm talking about the psychological withdrawals, mm. the appalling sense of anxiety and depression and um, panic and impending doom that one gets when you leave alcohol alone. And nobody can see that because it's in the person's head. So does alcohol compensate for that? Yes. Alcohol does a, does a couple of the First of all, it's it takes away these – it eases the feelings of anxiety yes. and depression. The other thing that it does is – I mean, I asked that question as if I'm naive, but I'm asking it for you to explicitly say yes. That's exactly well, it's what an, it does. It's, it's, a, it's a psychological and physi physiological anesthetic. Right. Um, what it does, it also reduces the anticipation of neg negative consequences in the future. Hmm. So, um, so are those your rose-tinted spectacles? <laughs> I don't know if they are any rose-tinted. It's just that as you talk about the future and reducing fear of the future and what you might anticipate, it's kind of allowing you to 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 not see, in a sense. But it takes away, I think, any sense of the future actually, right. rather than uh, because I mean, you can have a life that's falling apart financially and yeah. uh, in relationships and that sort of thing. And you know that the there are bad things coming and difficult times ahead. But if I can drink now, then I will feel better at least in this moment. Right. I, I believe anyway. I mean, at least early on in alcohol use. Later, as we go on, it it really doesn't make you feel any better at all. But you you can't stop it. It changes from impulsive when I use when I'm feeling discomfort because of emotions or. Um, I've had an argument with somebody or I, I'm stressed or one of the things that uh, is very powerful, I think, is relief hmm. um, and, 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 and happiness, positive emotions. Um, Short term? Very much so. So I, when I feel these things, I feel uncomfortable, so I drink. Yes. And but there's no learning that takes place. As in, there's learning that alcohol helps me to cope. In that moment. But there's no learning that… The consequences of that are bad. Right. So in the AA book, they talk about alcoholism being an insanity, and that's what they're referring to is that things uh, turn out badly, and yet I keep on doing it. Yes. So they use the example of a guy who's a jaywalker who keeps crossing the street and getting run over until, and he keeps, he gets mild injuries, then more severe injuries, then ends up in hospital. And you'd look at this guy and think, you know, why do you keep, crossing the road in front of the traffic. Yes. So he must be crazy. And that's exactly what it's like. I mean, it's quite a good analogy. You know, you're, it, it, 
nothing good comes of it. And yet what your brain remembers is that it at least once eased the discomfort of of life. Yes. And that's what I remember and that's what I'm continually chasing. And that's why I can't leave it alone. Uh, and then, and the, that's and, and uh, sorry, and, and that's different for different people. That's why some become alcoholic, others don't. With drinking, well, what makes somebody become an alcoholic and somebody else not? I'm not sure. Okay, um, I was hoping you'd have the answer. People use different things. I mean, some yes. people um, there's clearly something going on in a, in an alcoholic or an addict's brain, right? That, yes, uh, must that be. they can't stop drinking and other people can. Some yes. people can have half a glass of wine at at lunch. I mean, to me, that sounds absolutely crazy. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but but I mean, other people climb the corporate ladder. Yes, they chase degrees. They right. look look for material goods. They buy the big car. They have to drive around. They're looking for status, despite the fact they can't afford that type of thing. Sometimes they <clears throat> have unhappy families because they uh, release their stress and aggression on the people who are closest to them. So different people cope with life in different ways. If you have a predisposition to becoming dependent on drugs, well, of course, just alcohol is just a drug, like yes. heroin or anything like that. Oh, it's one of ten substances in right. the DSM-5. Right. So, I mean, I always say to people that this isn't entirely true, but but in general, it doesn't really matter what your substance is. It's no more easy or more difficult to, to stay long-term. Once you've gone through the period where you get off that particular substance yeah. so with the withdrawal period and all of that. So that's slightly different for different drugs. Yeah. But uh, then facing a life after that, um, it's no more difficult or easy to stay off alcohol than it is to stay off heroin. If you're, an, if you're an ad, if you've been addicted to those things. Right. So, so the, that's how I would define an addict is after you have become abstinent, right? And, and, and some people require help to do that, yeah. which may involve treatments for, the withdrawals and uh, to prevent having seizures and things like that. Um, some people have a lot more trouble staying independent of their substance thereafter. Mm. And um, so the medical profession talks about addiction as a chronic relapsing condition, chronic and it's long-term and it relapsing every now and again, there will be uh, a return to using uh, or drinking, return to drinking. And then one would have to get back onto that, pathway of um, seeking help and uh, going through the period of becoming abstinent and um, then embark again on a program which enables them to address their psychological discomfort so that life is easier. So this is the the function of the 12 steps. It's a, it's a lovely program. I th- you, you're saying that is it just limited to alcohol? Well, of course, it's there. There are many different anonymous groups, all that are sort of like yes. based on the 12 steps. Right. Um, so it's not limited to alcohol from that point of view. But like uh, many psychological tools, essentially, to make sense of life yes. and uh, to overcome – Personal and psychological difficulties. You're, we, we chat about this a lot, right? Like childhood yes. adverse experiences. Yes. Right? And, and people respond to those in different ways. So we're talking about the, the big three, of course, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, but divorce, um, illness in the family, uh, bullying. Uh, there are all sorts of things, traumatic events, accidents, um, Loss illness. Of Loss, loss of, jobs, of job. I loss mean, of all of these things can have a profound effect on the young person who's growing up and developing into who they can be. Yeah. And some people will actually turn those things around and become more resilient, whereas other people don't. They they develop a low sense of self worth, low self esteem. Um, this sense that I don't have control over my life. Everything's uncertain. That life is is scary. And those people are more likely to turn to some sort of way to anesthetize those feelings. Yes. So what makes one person resilient and another person who've had the same experience fall apart? More vulnerable. Um, it's difficult to know exactly. Yes. I mean, everything comes back, not everything, but often it comes back to personality and… Uh, and other support. 
So, so, so even yeah. if you don't have supportive parents, of course, I mean, a child is if a child's got a, a good role model and a good mentor, mm. even outside of the family, that child's much more likely to grow up uh, so, more functional. So, in terms of the twelve steps, because we're going to get into the specifics, but obviously, before you get there, I mean, there are interventions. They often speak about an intervention. This mm. person needs an intervention, mm. and. I kind of envisage that as a bunch of people sitting around an individual who's now getting bombarded with the fact that their life is falling apart and they need to do something about it. How often does that really happen in terms of alcohol, alcoholism, these interventions? Well, I mean, the way I would see an intervention is just anything that's going to interrupt the yes. flow of what's already happening. So this is exactly how um, – Alcoholics Anonymous worked um, and and does work still, although yes. it's slightly different now because there are so many groups so people can 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 go to a group by themselves, but is to be visited by people who've gone through the same thing yes and have essentially a personal interview where um, these people would relate their experience. just knowing that you know there is an alternative path to the path you've been on because the problem with alcoholism is is it's incredibly hopeless there's an enormous sense of despair so for example i mean they say that seven percent of people are addicts right so you go to a party with a hundred people there and i always say why am i the only one lying at the bottom of the stairs where's the other six. six yeah so i mean and you know you 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 have to face the consequences of not only things that uh, that you've you've done and said, and but also the things that you can't remember. So yes. you know, blackouts are, are the most horrific thing to experience. In the in the text, they talk about, and I often think maybe this is what differentiates an alcoholic from someone who's just a bit of a problem drinker. They talk about the sense of incomprehensible demoralization. Whew, that's quite a statement. And. Um, Incomprehensible demoralization. And wow. I think if you've experienced the blackout, that's exactly what it is. You know, this, it's, it's an appalling sense of despair and hopelessness. So to be, to be, um, to be visited or, or, yes. or to have an interview with people who've been through the same thing, just to know that other people have got over this. I'm still, I'm still, still quite I'm still sorry. I'm getting my head around incomprehensible demoralization. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'm not sure that I've encountered those two words juxtapositioned in quite that way. It's very powerful. It's, it's profound. And I, yeah. And uh, if you've experienced it, you will never forget it. <laughs> well, I hope not ever to have to experience it. But obviously, I mean, intervention, if successful, leads to rehabilitation because that's really where we're kind of moving and obviously yeah. rehabilitation has maybe different phases and is different for different people. Right. Some may require an inpatient stay, some maybe will, you know, work as 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 outpatients. Um so you don't I, need to be admitted to rehab to go through the right. steps. Many people will choose to go to um a twelve step meeting. Right. And um find somebody there who will help them to to go through these things. Right. We were talking earlier on about, you know, this not admitting that there is a problem. So many people reach a point. I don't believe that rock bottom exists. I think that, you know, things can be worse for your family when you're dead. So uh, I I think that what. Actually, what it's interesting because I was going to ask you, what is rock bottom? How do you define rock bottom? I could swear that as low as you go, there's always lower. Exactly. So, so that's why I don't like the term. Most people reach a turning point where they've just had enough. Turning point. And that's, yes. that's, they, of course, then you look back and you say, I was at my rock bottom. Right. I mean, some people go to prison, some people um, are involved in s terrible accidents and right. things like that. Um, whereas other people just are confronted by their child or their adult yes. child um, and say, you know, dad or mum, you're drinking too much, you're, you're never there. You, you're present, but you're not there. Yes. 
um, and it's distressing us. And, and, and for some people, that can be enough. You know, well, I can see it's a problem now. It's upsetting my children. I don't want to upset my children. So that would become my rock bottom, right? Right. But that doesn't compare at all to somebody who's ended up going to prison. And, but this is the thing. This is why if you go to the meetings, you meet a, a wide variety of people. So I say, I mean, I don't, don't think that in this particular thing that the term addict is necessarily applicable to everybody. But I do think that for people who have a more severe problem, because if, if people who continually return to using can get very demoralized. And bearing in mind that this is a smaller percentage of people who would be classified as an alcoholic or look like an alcoholic. Right. And so when doctors see these sorts of people, they seem to be hopeless. They, right. they just you know, why can't you pull yourself together? You know, other people stop drinking, you know, what's wrong with you? And yet there's clearly something different again about those people that they're not able to remain independent of alcohol like some other people can. Abstinence is a big criterion for or requirement for recovery. Yes. So we, we discussed this last time, but um, – for some people who are heavy chronic drinkers, mm. um, if they've given a big enough, a good enough reason, for example, their family is going to leave them or they're going to be put into prison or they're going to lose their job, uh, they can stop by themselves. So that's where I would draw the line at being, I don't think those people are addicted. I just think they are using it right. to help cope with life. But now uh, things have got to the point where that's not serving its purpose anymore. Okay. And I need to find another way. Whereas an addict, I, I think, um, regardless of what the consequences are potentially, they 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 don't they can't and don't stop. Right. And so, they, if you don't understand, if you haven't been involved with people like this, those people look like people who aren't prepared to try. Right. Um, they look like they're incredibly selfish, um, which is a characteristic of alcoholism, of course, sure. self-centeredness, not yeah. necessarily selfishness. Um, and, and then those people can be shunned, and, 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 and it just adds to their despair and their spiraling alcohol right. use. But if one recognizes that they're not the same as those people who can stop by themselves. So you're talking about abstinence. So for some people who are using too much alcohol who might go to an AA meeting, the, the, the principle in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, is abstinence. Right. Um, and sobriety is very much a, a, a measure of recovery. What do you mean by sobriety? I suppose abstinence. Right. So, yes. But I don't think that, you know, there's a sort of sense often that if you've been abstinent and you return to drinking, it's a disaster. Right, you've relapsed. Uh, yes, I hate that word, <laughs> relapse. Okay. Because, um, for example, I mean, I'll, I'll see people in, in, in rehab who are back again. Right. And they've returned to drinking. And I often say to them, well, when did this start? And they said, no, well, it was just last night. You know, and, and, and I mean, I don't know what you'd call that, a slip or something like that. Mm. The point is, I would say, well, where are you now? You're, you're in the right place. You've come straight back. You've mm. you got back on the journey, you know. Right. Don't beat yourself up over that. It happens. Yes. So what I say to people, and just listen to my words because it's very yes. It's not okay to relapse. It's not okay to return yes. to drinking because this time you might kill someone else's child. Right. But if you've relapsed, it's okay. It, it happens. happens. Right. And uh, let's get back on the journey before that terrible traumatic event happens. And, and, and as people go on, they actually become more able to do that. A lot mm. of people say, you know, I could never return to drinking. Let's, let's, I mean, the, the aim is not to, right? I'm, well, not, yes. I'm not trying to excuse it. No, no, no. Um, and they say, I don't think I've got an, another recovery in me because it is quite difficult to stop and to yes. stay abstinent. Um, but the point is you do have another one in you because there is no choice other than to do that, basically. Well, well I think the two things come to mind, the issue of judgment and the issue of stigma. You know, I think the way in which you're looking at it is saying, look, it's not ideal. These things happen. 
not judging you mm. and you're not being stigmatized as oh, no 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 goodness. let's not get rid of the stigma <laughs> oh, let's not get rid of it. <laughs> well the late mike yotsmith used to say where is all the stigma gone in yeah. relation to well i mean in, in, in america but, i mean this has been a big discussion in some of the medical journals you're not allowed to call people an addict anymore well i think that's why because it's a pejorative i mean it's just you know, well i think that's why i was raising we've got the to issue. call them an, an opioid user or yeah. an alcohol user yes i mean that's just ridiculous and somebody sitting in mike's kitchen having a steak as an alcohol user User. Well, um, somebody uh, who has been kicked out of Mike's kitchen for stealing a couple of bottles of wine and drinking it all on the premises is something more. Is yeah. So I, I don't. I don't. I, I agree with you about the distinction between judgment and stigma. Yeah. I don't think that we should normalize it or, or suggest that uh, we should be permissive with it. No, and I think you've been very clear on that. You're not saying it's okay, but it does happen. So what yeah. are we going to do about it? And let's get back on track and let's make sure yeah. as best we can that this doesn't happen. And I suppose that's where AA comes in and, 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 and the meetings, mm. which are so important because we're building towards the 12 steps. And I'm, I'm sort of looking now at AA in terms of how AA functions. Obviously, there are mm. meetings. Uh, it's individuals who come together as mm. a group. They share experiences. They share stories. Hopefully, they take strength or they take something from the meeting that in some way feeds them and helps them on mm. their on their journey. And then there's often talk of, of, of sponsors. Yes. And so how does one become a sponsor and, and, and what is the actual role of a sponsor? Cause I'm just trying to get this well, let's picture. Take a step back. There are different types of AA meetings. Okay. So some of them are a meeting uh, where somebody will relate a story about their experience, uh, what it was like, um, hopefully that's very brief because most people have sort of some sense, but the yes. aim of that is so that people can identify with it. Uh, then most importantly, what they did to get sober and stay sober and then how life is now, you know, that's sort of like they talk about sharing experience, mm. experiences, the strength that one gets from the group and yes. uh, embarking on a pro program of recovery and then a sense of hope that uh, right. life can change and be better, right? So experience, strength, and hope. Um, what was your question? Well, I think the issue was around sponsors. Oh, because sponsors. obviously, you know, you have somebody who kind of guides you more directly yeah. and is available to so this you. This is not a sponsor. They're, oh, is that not a sponsor? They're called sponsors. Oh. I, I have a I, – I, there are some terms that are used <laughs> – which um, so what would you call them? That I don't think are great words. Spon well, they're called sponsors, but what we're talking about really is a mentor, okay. somebody who will take you through the steps and um, teach you what they mean. Yes, uh, how to implement them, um, support you in your recovery. Have be somebody who is there always to talk to. Um, I will say to people, this isn't true. This isn't everybody's experience, but especially for people who have a more severe problem and people who I would classify as addicts, craving will be there. Mm. And, and in fact, the, the craving and the feeling of wanting a drink just to escape your own head, right? That can remain for many, many years and maybe even for life for some right. people. So to have somebody to talk to when that arises and a plan of action and as you go on in, in abstinence, you become better at knowing what to do about that. And So your mentor is well-versed in the 12 steps. Yes, so they should have a decent period of sobriety. Right. Um, they don't always. Um, some people get it very quickly and mm. do very well. Right. Um, so, but so, it should be somebody who, who's gone through the steps themselves. Yeah. And So let's talk about the sober. steps. Right. I mean, as I read through them carefully, obviously, mm. um, the origins, you know, and, and there's a specific use of language invoking God. Yes. So there's a very strong emphasis. And I understand the origins have a Christian basis. Yes. Would that be correct? Yes. And I think for some that has been a, a, a criticism of the 12 steps. Yes. If one can are, call it that. There are a number of criticisms that I've come across of the steps. Yes. Um, some of them um, may have some weight. Others of them are just inaccurate because it, 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 there's a lack of understanding if you haven't understood the steps right. uh, correctly. So the, the people who started AA were religious people. Mm. And I think when they refer to God, they mean God. Right. Um, but 
if you notice in the steps, the, they use three terms, right? They use the term God, a power greater than myself. Yes. A higher power and um, well, God as I understood him. So that's, that's actually four. Um, and, and those are, those are used interchangeably. And so the person going through these steps is invited to define for themselves right. what God may be, may mean to them. If we start, for example, let, let's go to the, the 12th step because yes. I think it's always good to start at the end. Well, I think know where we're going. I think the first thing is to say that the 12 steps, there are limitations. Yeah. Um, but if we're going to use the gold standard of evidence-based medicine, there's a recent Cochrane review mm. that you shared with me that says, well, the 12 steps actually do contribute positively to maintaining sobriety and towards the rehabilitation right. process. So I think there's no doubt about the utility of the 12 steps, whatever one's criticisms might be or yes. issues that one might so, have. So one doesn't need to take a religious approach. To no. These. I'm not a religious person. Right. And I think that everybody should – have the opportunity to consider these steps. Yes. These, when they sorry. these twelve steps are not original, by the way. They they just numbered them and made them twelve out yes. of. Uh, well, I see twelve actually comes up in various other forms, and I'm going to get to that mm. a little bit later. <laughs> when they speak about working the program, because that's a phrase that I often hear, mm, hear mm, used, mm. they're referring to the twelve steps, yes. working your way through the twelve steps. Yes. So let's and the other things that are involved in that. So I suppose so, so yes. things like going to meetings, okay. having a sponsor, right, um, doing the steps. Is it a is it a linear process like stepwise? You go, to get to step two, you've got to do step one, or can you do it in any sort of order? Well, first of all, it, it's numbered so that this again. I'm not speaking for any group. Yes, I'm speaking on my own behalf. Right. What it is, it's a framework to learn a new lifestyle. So I don't use the term recovery because I don't know what that means. When do you recover from alcoholism or addiction? You know, how long, how, how many times do I have to try before you say I'm a failure? That's right. the first thing. And secondly, how long do I need to be sober before you say that I'm cured and I'm recovered? Yeah. So people um, will occasionally ask me, um, are you an alcoholic in recovery or a recovered alcoholic? Or, I'm none of those things. I'm a normal person as long as I don't drink. Right. And so what I think we're actually doing, as opposed to using the word recovery, I think we are, we are learning to live a life that's worth living mm. such that we don't need to turn to substances to chemically alter our emotions. Mm. And that's what the steps are aimed at. They're a framework for a learned lifestyle mm. which is characterized by self-awareness, self-compassion, self-development, increased resilience to manage difficult emotions and difficult experiences in life, and um, psychological well-being, such that you are in a better position to find purpose and meaning. And let me just define those two things yes, because they're banded are, about. It. Yes, and they're very important. These are my definitions, okay. what I mean by them. Because I do think we, we you know, we, we, we think in words and uh, yes. so we need to be very clear on the words we're using. Otherwise Absolutely. our thoughts are wrong and then our behavior is wrong. When I talk about purpose, I mean that what I'm doing is worthwhile. Yeah. And when I talk about meaning that my life is worthwhile. That okay. the sense that I'm here, that, that I have something to offer. And so that's, the steps are essentially a framework for a lifestyle that facilitates meaning and purpose. Meaning and purpose, yes. Which they have been put together <coughs> under the uh, rubric of what they call recovery capital. Oh, okay. If you I've have, heard that term. Well, yes. No, this is this is the, this mm -hmm. is the term recovery capital, which comprise meaning and purpose, which means essentially you've got the resources to be okay. Right. So you were asking, are they sequential? Yes, that was a question. Well, they they are done sequentially, generally. Yes. Um, because there are certain steps that would lead to another. For example, when when they talk in step nine about making amends. Yes. Which is essentially putting things right, such that. You don't have things hanging over your head as you move into the future. Well, I think take step nine, one step back to step eight, because you first have to make a list. Well, let, let, well let's go back to the beginning in a minute. Yes. But, let's, um, yeah. So, so, so in, in that sense, you're not going to make uh, decide how to and who to and when to make amends 
without discussing it with somebody. So, you know, you're not going to start with step nine because you not there yet. You haven't sort of defined the, the process for that. Mm. Whereas if you take a look at step one that says yes. um, we admitted we were powerless oh, over alcohol, yeah. um, sometimes… I mean, you, that's, that's the word that jumps out at me is powerless. Yeah. So sometimes that's only possible once you've been through some of the other steps and actually had a look at the way your life has been going. Because as I said, losing life without drugs and alcohol is scary. Isn't that a requirement, though, to get into rehabilitation is that acknowledgement? We were talking about that earlier, that willingness to acknowledge, listen, I've got a problem, and which is not you know, uh, denial per se, but just a struggle to acknowledge. So, so willingness is very important, right? Yeah. And willingness is not the same as wanting to, by the way. So I, I think, you know, if you are a, a alcohol user, alcohol user, yes, um, it's actually quite difficult to want to stop drinking because you're… Should you have said alcohol abuser? Perhaps. Right. Well, alcohol user, alcohol abuser. Right. Well, we can, use them, we can use them interchangeably. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So I think it's very difficult to actually want to stop because yeah. you have this sort of cognitive dissonance. My prefrontal cortex, my thinking brain wants to stop because yes. I can see my relationships going, my finances yes. going, my right. my problems at work, or maybe even I've been fired, legal problem. So I want that to stop. But my lower levels of consciousness, the parts of consciousness that are low below my level of awareness, we talk about the limbic system, that part of the brain has learned that this is how I cope with a difficult yes. life. And so when I experience difficult mo emotions That's or difficult things, automatically it, it pops into my head a, a drink would be nice, right? I, I need a drink. Yeah. And if I'm not able to manage those feelings, then I will reach out and drink. Drink. Regardless so, of the fact that I want to stop. So sometimes we have this sort of like cognitive dissonance where I want to stop at the thinking. Yeah. I don't want to stop. So my brain has to make sense of this in way. And the way it makes sense of this very often is that I can't stop. Right. And so this doesn't seem like a wanting to stop. But willing is different. Willing just means that I'm not doing it against my will, right? That I'm prepared to try. Yes. And so I do think that if you're willing, it's probably an easier journey. But I don't think that even if you're forced – people don't, don't necessarily agree with this. But I don't think that even if you're forced for some reason to attend a rehab or to go to meetings, that you won't be, be successful. I think that it might be a little bit more difficult. But what, uh, especially if you you go to rehab or you're incarcerated somewhere, mm. what that forced sobriety enables you to do is to experience sobriety. I think that's very important, but it's very clear to me that without step one, the other steps don't follow because step one is a requirement. You have to admit that you are powerless. You have to acknowledge that there's a problem, and then you begin the journey. Yes. So, Well, so you don't need to – it's just sometimes it becomes – easier to acknowledge the problem when you have examined your life, which would be in steps three and four. Right? So that's what I'm saying. So if always that easier to maintain sobriety as opposed to walking, you know, taking that first step, because I mean, my understanding of the 12 steps is about maintaining as much as attaining. It's about maintaining. Yes. Well, you, you need to start off essentially it's with some sort of, abstinence i think yes um because if you if you continue to drink this is the this is the difficult thing and you know? people yeah. say to me well okay this is okay you know this is how i stay sober how do i stop drinking and i i really don't know the answer to that question except that um if if it's a case that you really can't stop drinking then it's helpful to be admitted somewhere where okay so that you know, maybe is the distinction between in and out patient but many people do do well just by no, staying in society and going. No, fair meetings, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. And I think we see that generally in psychiatry. So I think that's maybe where the distinction between an addict and a. So as um, I move to step two, so then it speaks to believing that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And so my question there is: Does that then externalize responsibility? No, not at all. It's okay. exactly the opposite. Okay. Explain. So let's go back to step one because step one is one of the, the steps where there's often criticisms. What it says is that we admitted, we admitted, right? So yeah. that's the acknowledgement. Acknowledgement, yeah. That we were powerless over alcohol, um, that our lives had become unmanageable. So 
that second part, your life is unmanageable when you're drinking, clearly, but your life is also unmanageable when you're not drinking because of relationship problems, financial problems, mm. uh, work problems, social problems that occur as a consequence of your drinking. Well, it doesn't specify that the unmanageable is in relation to purely when you're drinking. That's exactly the point. Yeah. But very importantly, it doesn't say that we're powerless either. It says powerless over alcohol. No, no, sure. So this brings us back to the definition right. of an alcoholic. Right. That uh, if you can't leave it alone, you may be an alcoholic. If you can't stop once you've started, you may be an alcoholic. So that's step one. So that that's the powerlessness, right? Is there's, that alcohol has you under its grips? But what I'm saying is that step one, there's a hell of a lot happening in that sentence. Yes. Actually. Um and we could spend a lot more time on it. But as I want to move through the steps, this idea of, of, of a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, so for many of us, we tried to get sober by ourselves. Yeah. And um, we try and Who's that power? control life. Who's that power greater than ourselves? Well, is that what God is a power or? greater than myself? It's not me. Okay. So, so I mean, for, for many people, um, the AA group can be a power greater than yourself. Okay. What it, 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 it what it says is that stop looking inside of yourself to solve a problem that you've created within yourself. Okay. So as Einstein said, right, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created the problem. Fair enough. So you're not managing. Okay. Hand yourself over over to the care of um, something greater than than Fair you. Fair enough. And that could be a facility. So. It could be a facility. It could be a meeting. It could yeah. be a group of people. It could be a group of friends. So, um, for some people, it is God. Well, that brings me to step three, which is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand as him, we which understand is quite interesting, him. as yes. we understand him. So for me, this is an important start of a process, which when I do this with people, I take them through something slightly different to um, – what's in the AA text, but, but not terribly different. Um, so, so this third step is about humility and about um, essentially letting go. Humility, yes, I like that. Yeah. So this is, this is, this is very important because I think humility is, is, is central to acknowledging our limits and saying, okay. So we, we've come through a process of acceptance, that yeah. we've accepted that uh, something's a problem and uh, it needs to change. And now what we're saying is that I, I can't do it by myself. Therefore, I let me um, humble um, – what's the word? Well, let me open myself up to assistance, to help. And the third one says, um, well, I'm going to stop fighting this. So sometimes yes. I use the word surrender, which I used to hate because it sort of like implies giving up. But mm, then, some, but it, it's not giving not really. up. It's, it's stopping fighting. Yeah. There's this lovely line in the AA book that says we stopped fighting everything, even alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I I like that because it, it it is very difficult to. Which brings us to step four: the moral inventory, which I think is again part of humility, where you're just looking at yourself and saying, "Who am I? What am I? What have I become?" Yes, and then and the next step talks about. Um, in fact, it speaks about self awareness and humility. That is step five, yeah. actually. Uh, uh, um, not, and then not, step six is we're entirely ready to to have God remove all these defects of character. So let's take those things as a as a as a whole. Yes. So this moral inventory is also sometimes a source of criticism of the twelve steps, where it's suggested that alcoholics are encouraged to admit to moral failings. This is not true at all. So the word they use there, moral, this, remember these were, this was written in the 30s. Right. So what they're, they're talking about there, they use it in the same way as we would talk about moral fiber rather than the way we use morals now, right and wrong. Okay. So what they're actually talking about is a character inventory. Mm-hmm. So Strengths and weaknesses? Helpful and unhelpful. Oh, behaviors. right, yes. That has uh, echoes of <laughs> a previous podcast yes. where I was coached on mindfulness by Ella Brent. So, So one of the ways that this, this third step is described, God as I understood him, was that if uh, there is a God, let's just say, there is, what would you like this God to be like? Yes. I don't pose that question to people. I ask people, um, if you were to have an intimate relationship with somebody – and when I talk about intimate, I mean somebody yeah, yeah, you can yeah. discuss your, sure. your emotions with. What would you like that person to be and make that list? This is a very important list because what it is, it's a list of character traits that are important to you. And this is the, the, the character inventory. So I would like this person to be 
kind. I'd like them to be honest. I'd like them to be trustful. I'd like them to be patient. Okay, so I think I'd like them to be hopeful, to be persevering. So I make this list. Okay, so what I'm understanding is it's not about good and bad. No, okay. because all of us have a. These are. This is a list of virtues, right? Right. When I talk about virtues, I'm talking about behaviors that relieve suffering. But then they go to the exact nature of our wrongs. And then move to have God remove all of these defects of character. Yes. Yeah, so, so when they when they wrote this, they refer to um, my absence of. Let's take a step back. This list of, of character traits is extremely important mm. because what it is, it's a list of character traits that I believe are important for me, and it's a list of virtues. Virtues are behaviors that relieve suffering. So, for example, if I'm patient when I go to the doctor's room and I'm kept waiting. I won't suffer as much as if I'm impatient, feeling uncomfortable, and then start shouting at the receptionist, and then she's uh, miserable. So if I behave virtuously, in this case it's patience, I won't suffer and the people around me won't suffer as much. Because one of the issues I've got, not issues, but it's, it's, it's this humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. So again, I'm getting a sense of external locus of control. Well, well, it depends whether you you take it on face value in its religious point, right? right. So, if let me come back to that list of virtues again, because yeah. what I'm doing is I'm creating this list that's important to me, and um, in alcoholism, um, we would not behave according to that list of virtues. Mm -hmm. By its mere nature, alcoholism is is self centered. Right. Um, we're not patient. We're not kind. We're not honest. Um, and so it's characterized by an absence of those things. And that's what they refer to when they talk about um, the ne exact nature of our wrongs and character defects. They're, talk they're referring to the absence of those of behaviors based on those virtues. Virtues, right. And I don't like – this is the, it's the one, the one little set of words in the A text I really dislike is, is the – uh, character defects, defects okay. of character. I don't think people have defects of character. I think everyone has experiences and does the best they can within that. Mm. But if you go back to that list of virtue, um, all of us have a capacity for virtue. It's like speaking a language, right? You, 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 you speak a language by practicing and spending your time around other people who are doing it. So if you want to learn to implement those virtues better in your life, mm. Uh, then that's the course of action to take. But if you go, it, it, Christopher, um, it, yeah. so we all have those things within us, but yes. some of us are better at some than others. Right. Right. So I may be very kind, but I'm not very patient. So what this character inventory does, and th there's more to this character inventory because w w one of the things we will do is we will select – uh, situations that didn't necessarily go as as well as they could go, mm. and notice which of those virtues we displayed and which of those virtues right. we could have displayed right. more. And had we displayed, if we had behaved differently in this situation, then the outcome would have been better. Right. So, I mean, I think… So what it does is it enables us to detect what character traits are there yes. and what other character traits are not there and need work. in a Yes. So I talk about cultivating them because right. that's exactly what – So I think that's very important because we then get to something which goes away from that to some extent and it's this list of people we have wronged in a sense and followed up with the need to make direct amends if it's appropriate. Yes. So I think that is also part of humbling yourself because I think there's a lot of humility that comes through in these – 12 steps yes. and action and, to, and accountability accountability and that's another reason to have a mentor because you become accountable to somebody yes um so i mean along the the, the course of your alcoholic adventures there'll be things that you've done or said or that have harmed people mm. um and the making amends is not specifically about saying an apology it's about putting right what you have done wrong. wrong. Yes. And that's why one doesn't rush into that because it requires some counsel, right? So this step five where I discuss my character inventory with yes. somebody else, 
first of all, it releases me this sense of aloneness yes. because I get some, uh, some sense that I'm not the only person who has these things, who's done these things. Secondly, there's an element of counsel. So I think that's very important because this is not a quick fix. You don't just move quickly from one step to the other. In fact, as we're talking, we could spend virtually an hour on each of the steps in terms of drilling down and, and exactly what they mean. So what I'm understanding is that when you work the program with a mentor, you really have to take each step and I have to use that word unpack, but you literally have to unpack it very carefully because there are layers within each step before you even consider the next step. Now, once you finish these steps, been through these steps, it becomes a framework for a life. So you never stop yes. doing the steps. Yes. So for example, step 10 says… Um, Personal inventory again. We, we, took, we continued to take personal in inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So in the book, they describe how in the morning we'll look forward to the day yes. and um, plan how we're going to approach things and what needs to be done. And at the end of the day, we'll look back on the day and say, well, where could I have done better? better? Yes. Um, and very importantly, by the way, this is not all negative. So – I always encourage people for every uh, thing that you identify where it could have turned out better and you look for your responsibility in that. Pick five things that turned out well. Yes. Because what that you can't do a character inventory if you're going only going to look for the things that are unhealthy. Well, I think I think what you're talking about is balance. You have to look for because I do have strengths. Yes. So if I look at uh, uh, things that actually also went out well, I can yes. I can notice well it went well because I was compassionate or I was right. kind or I was generous, right? So I can notice those character traits that I'm stronger at. Which I think is important because it's not, as you say, it's not all negativity and bad because eventually then you're just hammering yourself. And this is another criticism of the steps. that It, it seems like it's quite negative, but it's not it's at not. all. No, well, I think as you are explaining it and as you interpret it, I think you're putting a very balanced uh, uh, understanding to what these 12 steps are about, mm. which brings us to 11 and 12, which seem to come together in terms of meditation, prayer, spiritual awakening, right. which so seems meditation to be and very prayer, important. Right, is, or is just purposeful attention. Okay. Right? So, so that's another thing that characterizes alcoholism apart from the self-centeredness is just the inability to pay attention to what's going on, to what I'm feeling. And so what the meditation and prayer encourages is purposeful attention. Right. Um, and uh, there's also um, – They do, again, bring in God into this. But if you are an atheist, mm. that doesn't necessarily apply. But the issue of invoking meditation certainly cuts across, doesn't matter what your belief is. You see, I have this sort of sense that regardless of whether you're religious or not, prayer can be incredibly powerful. Oh, well, I think prayer is incredibly powerful. And I think for me, prayer is a form of meditation in its own way. If, yes, it is, exactly. So, so when we talk about meditation, we're not specifically talking about sort of like transcendental or mindfulness. Sure. We're talking about purposeful attention. Right. right. So we're running out of time. So I need to get to step 12 because I think that the spiritual awakening seems to be a critical component mm. of the recovery and staying. And again, this well. is another place where there's criticism because of the word spiritual, because spiritual means different things to, to different, different people. Absolutely. To some people it means religious. But the, well, it's not exclusively religious no, as we've understood. Well, there's, there's two sides to me, right? If yes. I was run over by a truck, yes. the physical me would still be lying in the road and you could step over it. But the me that you're connecting with now and that we're talking to and that people are listening to uh, is the spiritual part of me, my soul, if you like. It's the, the inner – when I was a doctor, right, we dissected the body and I held the brain in my hand. Yes. What, what do you weigh? Two and a half kilograms or something. I thought this is a piece of meat. But you put that brain into a person and it fills the world, right? Right. That's your spirituality. So the spiritual awakening is – uh, all of us have expe experienced this where you get this sense of unity mm. with w what you're experiencing. So you can sometimes get that with music or art or nature uh, or a religious experience or some of the other um, followings that are, that are spiritual but not religious, like, for example, Buddhism, which was originally not a religion. S spirituality is the connection with something bigger than yourself. Yes, and there's usually something that, that, that stuff that goes along with that. Which right? is also to me about humility. Humility, a lack of a sense of aloneness. Now I have a union with the mm. 
the people, the people around me, with nature, for example. And secondly, there are ways that uh, spirituality manifests, and these are usually in loving behaviors. So I want to touch on that spirituality in relation to something completely different, mm. psilocybin. Right. Everybody talks about the hallucinogenics, et cetera, mm. et cetera, the psychedelics. Mm. But the key component in the positive outcome is that there should be a spiritual experience. So I think increasingly I'm seeing spirituality as, a, as an important component of wellness and recovery. So we've covered the 12 steps as simply as we can. Mm. We could have done a much deeper dive, and I know that we could say much more. My last question is, does it ever end? Could you do the 12 steps and then where do you go from there? Well, it doesn't end because what you're doing, I'll say to people, one of the reasons that alcohol uh, recovery is scary or, or becoming, because what happens is, is you become a new person. You grow into who you can be. And when you change and the, your behavior changes, the consequences of your behavior change. Right. And when the consequences of your behavior change, the, your entire world starts to change because the way people relate do to you, you find that changes. People, do you find that people redo the 12 steps but having grown and they experience the 12 steps differently to how they first experienced them when they started out? Yes, so I think Okay. So listen, I want to thank you and I know that we could go on. Um, for much longer. And in fact, we could have drilled down into so much more for each step. But obviously, your wisdom and experience is always a pleasure to share. And it's lovely to have you here. And so the question for me is whether the 12 steps constitute a blueprint or guide for how one might live one's life generally. And I'm not sure that one needs to suffer from a specific addiction or substance use disorder to consider some basic principles towards living a better life, noting that the tried and tested observation that prevention is better than cure holds true. And, of course, there are other approaches to living a better life. Let's take Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life and his follow-up beyond order, 12 more rules, and I'm seeing this number 12 crop up all over the place. So, you know, one might not find his work of value, but for good measure, I think a Peterson quote from the aforementioned book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, does capture something of today's conversation. We understand full well that we can do evil and bring terrible things into being. But we also know that we can do good, if not great things. We have the best chance of doing the latter if we act properly as a consequence of being truthful, responsible, grateful, and humble. And I think to some extent that echoes a lot of what we've been discussing today. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.